This is episode number 355 with Tamara Mallon of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder Fam? Nathan Chan here. Hope you are doing okay wherever you are around the world. Welcome back to another episode. As always, we've got an incredible founder. Uh, you know, just someone you don't really get to listen to. Uh, today's guest, her name is Tamara Mallon. She's created a luxury brand, Empire. You might have heard of her first brand called Jimmy Choo. We go through the story of how she's created this incredible luxury brand and the ups and the downs, lessons learned, raising capital, uh, you know, scaling that business. Now, also, she has launched her own luxury and accessory brand called Tamara Mallon. We talk about, as well, the brick-and-mortar stores the change in the fashion industry and how they're really turning things around on the direct-to-consumer model and pivoting during COVID. Um, We also talk about brand building, which I think is so critical, right? In today's age, so many e-commerce companies are launching. How do you build a brand that stands out? How do you build a brand that gets cut through? How do you build a brand where celebrities want to wear your products or use your products i think you're gonna love this episode this was an absolute treat tamara was very very generous with her time if you guys are enjoying these interviews please do take the time to leave us a review these are 100 percent free please do share these with a friend someone wants to start or is trying to grow a business or multiple friends or your family that's it from me guys now let's jump in the show the first question I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Well, it's been a long career. So I've been in the fashion business for 30 years. The job I have today is um, 
because I went out and I raised money and <laughs> founded my business. Um, but that comes off a long history. This is the second company I founded. The first company I founded was called Jimmy Choo, which was another shoe company. Awesome. Um, and before that, you were at Vogue, right? British Vogue. Yes. So I was at Vogue for five years. So I really, you know, started my career um, just because I love fashion. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do in the fashion business. So when I was 18 years old, I didn't go to college. When I was 18 years old, I was working on a shop floor selling clothes. And from there, I went to working for a PR firm. And while I was at the PR firm, I realized that, oh, I want to be on the other side of the fence. I want to be the fashion editor coming in, picking the product to photograph. So I applied for a job at Mirabella magazine and I became the assistant to the fashion director. And unfortunately that folded in the UK, but then I was headhunted um, to go and do uh, the same thing at British Vogue. I started as the assistant to the fashion director at British Vogue. And then I became the accessories editor. Being the accessories editor is when I had that light bulb moment to start Jimmy Choo because I was dealing with all the accessories and I could see that there was a gap in the market. So I founded Jimmy Choo in 96. Um, I was 27 and built it uh, for 16 years and then sold it. Hmm, Interesting. Now, I'd love to really delve deep on this origin story that I want to talk about everything that you're up to now with Tamara Mellon. Um, so I'm curious, uh, what was the gap in the market that you found? So I realized that nobody was doing really interesting luxury women's shoes. Um, it was about to happen. So mid nineties, uh, this wave started of accessories exploding before that it was all about the clothing and nobody cared about the accessories. So there was one shoe designer that was all the editors were photographing and he was the king of shoes. He was called Manolo Blahnik, right? And as a fashion editor, I was tired of shooting the same brand all the time. So I found a cobbler in the East End of London called Jimmy Choo. And I would go to his studio, which was like a Dickensian studio in a disused garage in the East End of London, which 30 years ago was a very dangerous place to be. And um, it was probably like meatpacking 30 years ago. And um, I used to go to his studio and I'd get him to make things for shoots. I would say, okay, I'm doing a story and it's based on gladiators, right? Can you make me a gladiator sandal? And I want you to put the studs here and I want it in metallic silver. And so he'd make it, I'd photograph it and I'd give him a credit in Vogue. So that went on for five years. So the name became known. And so I thought, you know what? This is a great platform to start a company off because the name is known, but you can't get the shoes unless you go to him and have him make one, you know, he made handmade one-off pairs. Wow, interesting. So it was purely bespoke. Yes, before. So my idea was I took the idea to him and I said, look, I will raise the funding. I will find factories in Italy to produce it. I will uh, bring in wholesale accounts. I will do the PR and the marketing because of my background. 
And then when actually when I got into it, I what I quickly realized was Jimmy's talent was in making the shoes. Technically, he's making the shoes, but the creative vision was mine. When I was going to his studio, the creative vision for the shoes was mine. So I ended up designing the collection. Ah, I see. So you are like still basically pretty hardcore product. Yes. Yep. Got you. Yeah. And so you left Vogue, and you started uh, producing the shoes in Italy. You raised you raised capital. It was very tough. So, like most young founders, without proof of of idea or proof of product, it's very hard to raise money. I raised money through uh, family. So the seed uh, investment was very small. It was one hundred and fifty thousand. <laughs> which is probably like 300 grand today. Um, very small, but, you know, it's... Uh, and then when there was proof that it was working, then um, I actually... I had private equity come into the company, but the difference between private equity and VC is private equity doesn't actually... didn't actually invest in my company at that time. They just... they bought shares and we grew the company from cash flow. But that's different to my business today. Today, I've raised money from venture capital, which have invested in the business. Got you. Interesting. Oh, well, I'm, I'm excited to hear about what you're up to now. So what I'd love to do, though, is get a little bit of a background more around how you built this incredible brand with Jimmy Choo. Like it is a household name, luxury brand that um, is no small feat, right? Like a lot of people you look at, you look at brands, like speaking of shoes, like a few months ago, we interviewed the founder of Reebok, right? And once again, a really well-known, definitely not luxury, right? But like a really well-known brand, when you hear those words, you think and feel something. And I'm a male, I, I have no interest in female shoes, but like you, you just, like, how does it come to that, like that feeling, that sense of, like Jimmy Choo, the class, the luxury, like the respect, like you would think that it's not going to be a cheap shoe. It's going to be an expensive, like ha, ha, what What do you think it took? Like what, can you tell, talk us through that? So, you know, um, people always ask me that question, like, well, was it the clever marketing? Was it, yes, we were ahead of our time with marketing. We were clever, but with a fashion brand, or with a product that's something that somebody wears, products just got to be good. You know, the product has got to be desirable. Um, people have to dream about that product. Um, and then you can put clever marketing around it. So with Jimmy Choo, I was the first British brand to go to the Oscars. I was the first shoe brand to go to the Oscars. And I set up a suite and I gave shoes to the actresses who were going to the awards. And, and what I did was... I didn't know what color their dress was going to be because everything was top secret, right? So I took everything in white satin and I hand dyed it in the bathtub in the hotel bathroom. Wow. <laughs> we picked their color. We were dyeing it in the bathtub. I mean, we've had like crazy stories. Like Julianne Moore literally walked out in a pair of wet dyed shoes. Um, <laughs> you know, and we were, there's, there's, you know, part of success is a bit of luck too, right? You know, we we were on Sex in the City multiple times. Uh, Candice Bushnell, who 
you know, invented the show, came into my first Jimmy Choo store in Mockham Street in London, which was so tiny you could fit only probably three people in it. But she fell in love with the shoes, so she wrote them into the script. You know, so so part of it was luck that she came in. Yeah, but luck, luck is made, you think? Or That's true. That's true. Luck, luck can be made. And, you know, and sometimes, yeah, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Because mm. it sounds like, you know, it was momentum that was built on top of each other. So when when was that turning point? So obviously you said it was around $150,000 probably to do your first, was that your first run? Like your first, you know, first MOQ? Yep. Yep. Yes. Okay. And so how many shoes did you get out of that? And how many styles did you do? So we did about... 60 styles. Oh, wow. 60 um, different which styles. Which we took to market. Wow. And then how many shoes? So was, was it just one of each? So then it was 60 and then you, we offered three colorways of each. So you could choose out of three colorways. Wow. So that's actually then, quite a few skews. Yeah. Yeah. There was quite a lot of skews. Um, but the thing is when you're taking a collection to a wholesale market, it's, then it's edited, right? And you see which ones drop out. So you don't end up ordering all those or selling all those. And then you didn't end up ordering all those for the store either. It's sort of an editing process, um, which is very different to what I do today because I don't do any wholesale with my business today. So I pre-edit the collection. When you first launched with with Jimmy Choo, like did it like did it just go gangbusters or did you um, did you leave Vogue straight away or did you drop some things in through through Vogue? Like how, how did you, yeah. Yeah, so I, I left Vogue with the mindset of starting Jimmy Choo. I really, I really wanted to have my own company um, at that point and I was very passionate about building this brand. So, so, yeah, so, no, the transition I left with the risk of not having anything even before I signed contracts with Jimmy um, and I would say the collection took off. It probably took about, it was our th- probably third collection where it really took off. Um, it took us a couple of seasons, a couple of collections to get the rhythm of it to get going. And then our 97 or 98, spring, summer 98 is when it blew up. Why do you think that is? Just the product uh did you get any influential people wearing the sh- like was that what was your big break or the big break was really the product um it took a while to really uh find my voice with it and then once i really honed that of what i wanted to do with the product yeah and then it took off i mean we had a couple of mishaps before you know um i went to one a uh, not a good factory who delivered the samples that were terribly made that i couldn't show them um, and I had to try and sell shoes off sketches um, and hide the product in the bathroom. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, so no, it was, it's not all, it wasn't, it, nothing goes up in a straight line, right? It's always an, like an up and down. It's always a jagged sort of rocky start. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And then, um, did you launch the store straight away as well, your first store or, or your retail store? Or when did you I start did. that? Okay, you started with that. Yeah, I did, which was a bold move because normally you won't see brands do that. You'll see brands take their um, product to market through wholesale first. But I, op- I opened up a Jimmy Choo store before we even took the collection to wholesale. 
Um, it, but it was tiny. It was the size of a shoebox. And, and I did, it wasn't on a main shopping street, but it was just adjacent to where all the luxury brands were. So you just had to like walk around the block. Um, so it was a very low rent, very tiny, but it gave us a presence and it gave us a place to invite people to come to so they could feel the brand, they could see all the product displayed. Mm, yeah, there's something very special about that. Um, you see a lot of uh, e-commerce brands now, like D- direct-to-consumer, they also open stores as well to, to speak to customers, to get that constant feedback and that feel. Well, that's what I've done with my new brand, Tomorrow Mellon. It was digitally born. Um, but then after a couple of years, we started uh, decided to go offline and open retail stores. Um, and in fact, you know, what our retail store here in LA during the pandemic is doing unbelievably well. Again, it was the idea of just having a tiny little shoe box. Now we're calling them shoe closets. And we've designed them as if you're walking into a woman's shoe closet. So we've thought about the shoe shopping experience. So normally if you go into a department store, they'll have half a pair displayed on a table and you have to say, do you have that in my size? Then somebody disappears behind a curtain. They come back with a stack of boxes. You try it on. You're like, oh, I need half size up or half size down. Or do you have another color? Or It's a long, painful process. So we designed a shoe closet where everything, every size is uh, displayed and is displayed in pairs. And it repeats. The closet, the mini closet repeats. So anybody can walk in, go to their shoe size, pick a pair off the shelf, try it on, buy it, and leave. Wow, so that's we've, crazy. So we've cut a lot of the pain points out of shoe shopping. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. Um, before we go into tomorrow, Mount, I just have to find, wrap out the end of the story for, for you and Jimmy Chu and what ended up happening. So you sold the company. Was you, you eventually, um, you, you partnered with a, a P&E, right? And then you eventually listed, yeah? They did. They listed um, after I left. So I sold it to a company called Labelux. They listed it. Then it was taken off. And then um, uh, Capri bought it. Capri are now the owners of it. Got you. And um, I'm curious, uh, what brought you to that decision to, to, to sell? Um, you know, I'd been through four private equity deals and anybody that's had experience with that knows that that's really hard to do. Um, you know, and how private equity came into the business in 2001, Jimmy decided he wanted to sell his shares. And for me, it was way too early, but he was like, we're good. I'm selling. <laughs> so, um, so private equity bought 50% of the company. He had 50%. I had 50%. And the curse was really our success because we were so successful that they wanted to sell every two to three years to show a return to their investors. They would look like heroes. They got a good return. But for a brand to go through a sale process every two to three years, first of all, it disrupts the whole management team. People get nervous they're going to lose their jobs. I have to deal with a new partner, a completely new board every two to three years. And that private equity company coming in wants the same results as the guy before. 
And so by the end of, of 10 years of doing that, I was just burnt out. And also I wanted to start a brand with a very, very different culture than what I'd been living. Yeah, and I'm sure you learned a lot of lessons throughout that experience too, right? An unbelievable amount of lessons. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success, you should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. Fast forward to now, let's talk about Tamara Mallon. How did that come about? Did you take a break after you sold the rest of your shares at Jimmy Choo? What, what, what happened? Should have taken a longer break, but I was anxious to get started. So I had a, a non-compete. I wasn't allowed to work for a year. So during that time, I actually wrote a book. So I wrote a book called In My Shoes. And it's the story of building Jimmy Choo, if anyone's interested. It was, yeah, it was the story of those 16 years. And then, um, then I, as soon as my non-compete ran out, I started this brand. And the purpose of this brand was really um, for me to build a company with a different culture and a different business model. So on the business model side, I saw the tsunami that was coming that was about to hit the fashion business and how we all had to do things differently. And then on more of a personal level, I wanted more women in the C-suite. I wanted a female CEO. I wanted investors who were going to stay for the long term and were going to be a lot more supportive. I've found that dealing with VC, they've been a completely different animal to private equity. Um, They've been unbelievably supported out of a lot of value. They've been in the weeds with us when we need them. They leave us alone when we don't want them. Um, it's been a completely different experience. When did you start Tamara Mallon? It was 2013. Yeah, so I've had two two goes at this. So 2013, I started with the idea of doing something we call in the fashion industry, buy now, wear now, which means you deliver product in, in the right season. Right? We deliver autumn, winter in the autumn, winter. We deliver spring, summer, where those seasons have got pushed in the, you know, wrong. So the fashion industry now has tried to sell you bathing suits in February and winter coats in July, right? So, and then I tried to do something called uh, drops as well. So every month having new items come in, which is a reason for customers to come back. So if they come in at the beginning of the season, they see everything, they don't really have a reason to come back. So if you layer in drops on top of that, drives traffic back. My mistake the first time round, it was too early for wholesale. So I tried to put this business model through a traditional wholesale 
um, channel. So Neiman Marcus, um, Bergdorf's, you know, Sachs, they were not set up to buy this way or receive merchandise this way. So I had to put the company through a chapter 11, reorganize it, pivot, which I did. I went out and then raised money from some amazing VC firms who really understood what I was trying to do. They understood the um, direct-to-consumer approach. They understood disrupting the normal fashion calendar. So it took a couple of iterations to get it right. And you've got this new model now. Can you talk us through it? So now, um, so we are direct to consumer. So even, you know, we have our offline retail stores and everything is uh, on our website online. Um, And we have the flexibility to drop the shoes when we want to. We have flexibility to price how we want to because I'm not uh, restricted with wholesale markups. Um, And so we, we, we try different things. So going into the pandemic, we were putting out new shoes every week. Um, obviously, the pandemic disrupted a lot of things as well. Our factories in Italy were closed. Um, so we are launching a collection next week, in fact, even different than how we were doing it last year. So we are putting up the collection and we are doing something called pre-order. So we haven't bought any inventory up front. Because the problem with buying inventory up front is always a guessing game. No matter how good you are at reading the data, because you're always looking back at what's sold, right? And you're guessing which shoe is going to sell and how much or how little of it will sell. So rather than do that, we've decided to put everything up in pre-order and our customers will tell us which ones we want. They'll place their order. Then we'll place the orders with the factory and deliver the shoes six weeks later. And also it's, you know, we thought it's, it's sustainable. You know, we have less waste. We don't have shoes left over at the end of the season, which then we have to mark down. Look, I'm sitting here with you saying this today. In six months, I might be sitting with you saying, you know what, it didn't work. We're back to ordering products. Oh, no, <laughs> but that's the great thing about being in control of your own business. Mm. No, look, I, I think that's a a pretty good model in the in the sense of minimizing risk and maximizing upside it's it's like kickstarter right in 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 a way um your community is 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 voting with their wallets and that you know you you will find out what works uh it is different though to a lot of other fashion brands usually it's all there on display i mean right now we're seeing a lot of the big luxury brands trying to change so they realized that the old system just didn't work. So if you, uh, you know, Gucci announced they're reducing their wholesale, you know, uh, distribution and trying to get more direct sales. Um, they're also now looking at a drop model. They're going to be dropping product rather than releasing a full collection. Um, Saint Laurent is doing the same thing. They're moving to an in-season drop model. Everybody now is testing and trying new things because the old way just didn't work. Like, the, you know, the customer has moved on and the fashion industry now has to meet the customer where she's at or try and figure out where she's at and how she wants to shop. It's a little bit like how you started with your first 
batch of Jimmy Choo shoes. You had 60 different styles, three different colors, and then you put them out and you, you, didn't, you didn't make them all, right? You, you put it out to market and wholesale, right? And then, then off you go. It's a similar concept, but now you're doing it direct to consumer to the public. Exactly. Now the customers will tell it. The customers will edit for us instead of a buyer who's in between us. Yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome. And I'm curious, um, you mentioned something that was interesting. You said these uh, kind of really small stores that you're setting up, um, these retail stores, how many do you have? And you said they're doing really well even during COVID. Why? You know, I think part is uh, location. Um, And I think part is also people are desperate for human connection. I I actually personally think retail shopping will come back after the pandemic because everybody's been locked up for so long. We're all in need of human connection. And it's one way. It's part entertainment. It's part human connection. Um, So our store in L.A. is in a, a shopping mall that's right in the middle of a residential area. So people who are at home you know, sheltering at home, walk around the area and they, they see the store. So I think partly that is location, something for the residents to do. Um, and the other store is in Soho, downtown in New York. We're doing a lot of curbside pickup, uh, a lot of phone sales and local outreach. And also what's interesting is we're seeing people shopping in two different ways. So it's either function, which is comfy slippers, stay at home, or it's total fantasy. Like they're buying crazy things like, where are you going in that right now? <laughs> You're not going anywhere. But they're buying it because I think it's a little piece of hope for the future. Or it's a piece, it's a, just a bit of joy when you open that box. It's something that looks beautiful, that brings joy into your life. Yeah, that's interesting. You reminded me, uh, one of my friends who, incredible e-commerce, um, she told me that, lipstick sales always go gangbusters during a recession. Have you heard that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Many. Yes. I know that one because it's uh, the entry price point is very low and it's, uh, it's a little bit of joy. It makes you feel better. Um, you know, you put some color on your lips and it's just an inexpensive way to feel better. Mm, interesting. So, I'm curious, what are, what all of the lessons, because like um, you've been doing this for a long time, uh, what are the lessons that you are taking um, from your journey that you're really bringing to Tamara Mallon? Like uh, I'd love to know. So lessons for me are really uh, team. You know, your team is so important um, that you can't do it on your own. Um, you need an incredible team and it has to be a team when you're a startup of believers, you know, and that's the difficult thing about starting because you need, some people are very good at startups and some people are very good at being in a company when it's established and helping grow it and trying to straddle those two things. So obviously we want that scrappy mentality that sort of I'll roll up my sleeves and do anything, but we also want big thinkers who know you know, what our goals are, mission we're on, where we're trying to go. And you don't want people in your company who it's a job, right? You want, you want someone in your company who's this is their career and they love your business, they love your brand. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. Um, so how are you finding these people? It's hard. 
Um, we find them through uh, word of mouth. We find them through LinkedIn. We find them through agencies, um, asking friends, asking our network. Yeah, we use all different sources in any way we can. And when it comes to the marketing side of things, what are you doing that might be different, interesting, or that is working right now during this time? Because the rise of e-commerce and fashion is crazy right now. Anyone can open up a store you with Shopify. You can you, you can make all this work. Like the the market is easier, far easier to get into compared to yourself 30 years ago, right? You know, yes, you, know, you don't yeah. have any gatekeepers. Correct. Like, who were the old days, the buyers said, you can come in or you can't come in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the entry to being in the market is much easier, but the hard thing is to break through the noise. How do you break through the noise? Um, it's so expensive, right? Marketing on social media is whether it's Facebook, Instagram, I mean, it's just so expensive. And how do you do something different that breaks the, when someone's scrolling, what, make, what makes them stop to look at you? So we try all different things. We're constantly iterating and trying new things. So we do fun videos. We're gonna do some uh, 3D images. We are, you know, we mix, we mix it up between still photography, video, personal, not personal. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's such a mix of everything. Um, we do a little bit of traditional media buying and, and, we, and performance marketing, Facebook, Instagram, um, but that's what you don't want your company to become dependent on. You, you know, the greatest accolade for a brand is word of mouth. So when you finally get something, that suddenly goes viral, word of mouth. That's what you really want. Out of all the things that you've done on the marketing side to get cut through, to break through the noise, to get attention for the brand, what has been the most successful thing from your experience you've found thus far in the online world? So people respond most to video. Still images, uh, people don't really respond to anymore, but people love video. Um, they love seeing activity, even if it's five seconds. Um, so we're shifting most of what we're doing now to video. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think video is so powerful to build trust too. Yeah, yeah, there's more of an emotional connection. Are you using your personal brand to, to really help accelerate the growth of the brand too? Yes, funny enough, just talking to the team about that this morning. Um, so <laughs> more more of my person, yeah, more of me out front. Um, so we're planning that. So I'm going to be doing more videos, just talking to the customer and posting it, talking about the new collection. What's the innovation? What's so exciting about our new innovation? Because we have some really cool innovation coming, um, which I'm excited to share with everyone. So yes, yeah, so I definitely just like more videos of me talking to the customers, doing more um, just finding also women who are in my network that maybe are not in the fashion, but we have crossover customers so we can share that customer base with each other. They could be, you know, in the beauty business, they could be in the wellness sector, but we have similar customer bases and then we can share our customers. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, look, so this is this is like um, this would be such a, a big like 
difference for you compared to the Jimmy Choo days where you've probably, you're looking for young, dynamic, you know, performance marketers, social marketers, videographer, like graphic designers, like, yeah, that, that's, that's the game now, right? Yeah, the org chart is completely different to the org chart at Jimmy Choo. <laughs> I mean, to be honest with you, I hired a, a female CEO, a CEO who's a rock star. She built a company called Backcountry, which you've probably heard of. Um, it sells outdoor performance stuff. And she grew that business from 20 million in revenue to 500 million in revenue, all e-commerce selling other people's things. So when I first sat in a meeting with her, I was like, oh, Jill, I have... It's a whole new business language to learn. I don't even know what UX UI means. Okay. So like, I, I um, was on a massive learning curve. You know, I didn't, when I started this, I didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> and, and I've had to learn a lot. It's a very different. Yeah, it is. It is fierce and competitive, this online world. And it's ever moving so fast and you need to stay on top. So I'm curious though, in many ways, things haven't changed. Like the things that you were doing, like with the Oscars and influencer marketing or working with quote unquote ambassadors for your brand, that still works today, but in the online spot, like in the online world with your TikToks, your YouTubers, like, are you doing any of that? Um, Yes. So the markets shifted from trying to dress an actress on the red carpet going to an event. I mean, that that still exists. We do VIP dressing, but really um, it's shifted to influencers. So, um, you know, and you have different types of influencers. So you have the type of influencer that has millions of followers, right, which they're not always the best to work with because the people who follow them are probably just fans and they're, they're not going to convert into customers for us. But people have a lower following and people are really engaged with them and they're following them because they like what they're wearing. They like the way they mix outfits. They like the brands that they talk about. Those are the ones that convert better. So it's, it's finding, you know, also you've got to find the influencer that's the right aesthetic for your brand because it really depends on are those followers going to like my brand so it's got to be the right fit you don't want to go out to any influencer who doesn't has the wrong aesthetic or the wrong message um they've got to be on on brand yeah i agree it's yeah it comes down to the relationship that that person has with their following and the the depth yeah. of it okay yeah whether they're they're engaged Okay, so look, we'll work towards wrapping up. I'm like mindful of your time tomorrow. Um, so a couple of last questions. Um, I think it's really smart how you, you shared around the, your, your CEO that you've put in place who had done it before. I think that is so critical when you're trying to build um, an incredible company of true worth and significance. I'd love to know just any final words of wisdom when it comes to building an incredible brand. Because I think, I, I know you talked about product, um, but is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Because you have built an iconic household name brand, which I think is, is no easy feat. Uh, know your customer right? and, and relate to your customer. People, most people's purchases are emotional. 
right? And so you've got to have that emotional connection with your customer. That's what people base their decisions on. Majority of people base their decisions on their emotions. Um, and I think that's important to remember. Awesome. And uh, yeah, uh, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work and your, your new brand? Um, so tomorrowmelon.com. You can follow us, obviously, on Instagram and Twitter. We have a TikTok. We haven't been good that good at it, but we're hopefully going to get better. <laughs> but uh, Instagram and tomorrowmelon.com is the best place to find us. Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. This is a fantastic interview. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.